because it can be really strategic. As we minister to people, we learn a lot along the way. Uh, for those of us on our team, Matt and George and the girls that you, you've met and I, we actually, we feel like we're inheriting from mothers and fathers spiritually victories of battles we never fought. You know what I mean by that? So in, in LL, uh, Peter Horban and his wife Fiona and many of the leaders have really marched through uh, many battles, many battles o- with broken people to see them set free. And along that journey, God has taught them the principles of uh, how healing works. And then they hand the principles to us from the battles they fought. We suddenly have weapons to fight a battle that they earned and handed to us. Does that make sense? This is part of God's heart, that the generations ahead of us would actually leave us a spiritual inheritance. This is part of God's heart. So this afternoon, we're going to talk about general, generational inheritance. But to lead into that, I want to unpack a, a concept called soul touch. Uh, Matt just prayed into this briefly in his prayer, and we thought we should just un- unpack it for you. The principle of soul ties, I just want to let you know right off the bat, the, the word soul is in the Bible, but the term soul ties is not in the Bible. You okay? So I'm about to teach you a principle that's not biblical. Uh, but actually, we use it as an umbrella term under which there's many terms in the scriptures about being yoked together, about being bound to someone else, about being one with someone else, or being one heart, one spirit, some, and even to be one flesh when it comes to relating to a married couple. So of all the, there's a, about seven different terms in the scriptures for how our hearts can be bonded together. We use the term soul ties. A soul tie is, in the spirit, a bond between two people. Now, I want you to remember that God, when he created us, he created male and female in his image for relationship with him. He meant for us to bond together. He meant that a husband and a wife, when they sleep together, they become one. And this is the thing about the sexual union. Not only does it say it in in Genesis, that the husband and wife, you know, they, they become one. And they felt no shame about that. But when Jesus actually recalls that Genesis uh, 2 account, he says, for this reason, have you not read that the Father made them male and female and the two become one flesh? Sex joins people together. You okay with that? The problem is God planned for godly sex to bond people together. And it does. What the problem is, is when that sex is taken outside of the marriage covenant, it becomes ungodly sex, it also bonds people together. You following? So it's still bonds, even though it's outside the context of marriage. Uh, When I first heard that I was bonded to the person who, who I had my first sexual encounter with, it was quite upsetting. And rather than deal with it, in submission to the Lord, I ran from the idea and rejected it. Now, I was young in my faith, and I didn't realize what I was doing, but I was self-protecting by rejecting a biblical principle. Now, I know no one here has ever done that, so I'm just telling you about this so you can help your friends, right? So it's after lunch. I've got to keep you, keep you alive a little bit. But the challenging thing is we, it's important, even when there's shame involved, to recognize the self-protection that's almost so innate inside of us that sometimes we can reject those principles. I'm not trying to hurt you. I just want to try and help you. 
truth is found, it got deeper. When I realized that I, I was sexually tied to the person who I'd had my first sexual encounter with, that, that freaked me out. When a counselor first told me that it was sexual abuse, I rejected that idea too. If things were so garbled up inside of me, I had my own interpretation, my own perspective through things, and my own, in a sense, judgment of myself. So I'm trying, in a sense, to run with a spiritual ball and ch chain attached to me. Not only did I need to forgive myself because I was taking wrong responsibility, one of the things that abuse often does always amazes me. I thought it was just me, but as we've ministered to people down the line, one of the things that just blows me away is that a little girl who can be introduced to, to something uh, horrific sexual, where sex is meant to be life-giving and pleasurable, it becomes deadly and a killer when it's introduced at a vulnerable age, that actually that sexual abuse can happen to that little girl at the hands of someone who's bigger and older and more powerful and heightened, misusing their authority. Tell me, does she believe this stuff up? Isn't that the biggest robbery in the world? And, and then on top of that, to think that there's something shameful, therefore, about her, and if she believes there's something shameful about her, she's believing that there's something shameful about her sexuality, and her sexuality is the core of who she is, so that means that she's believing something shameful about her core identity. That's the work of the hellion shape, Satan himself. Because you're created in the image of God. He wants to defile and break the image of God so that you look at who you are and literally renounce the things that God says about you. Abuse is the handiwork of the evil one. Don't ever let anybody else convince you it's something else. The challenging thing, though, is, yes, forgiving that person, but it's sex joins people together. So then says, God, because I'm forgiving that person, I'm also asking you for forgiveness for my part. But be careful that you are, you're actually accurate or honest with your part. See what I'm saying? Don't take responsibility for things that aren't yours. There's no life in that, even if Satan told you to. You got abused when you were a little kid. It's not your fault. Not your fault. Very important you take right responsibility and you reject wrong responsibility. In a world of blame shifting, the, Lord, the word say, of God says is truth will set you free. That's not just some mystical prophetic name for Jesus. It also is connected to being in reality. So what I needed to do in my life is I actually needed to forgive the person who introduced me to something sexual. Even though I was involved, I was a victim of what they, they were initiating. And, but the fact that we were bonded together years later when I'm trying to run away from the pain, I guess if I drew a gun to it. Like I'm glad there wasn't somebody close because I might have been not very Christ-like in my response to that. So how can I possibly be bounded to some, someone who represents a season of my life that's the most shameful, most disgusting, you know, how can I be bonded to that person? And then they, they actually, they said, this is your part. This is the most painful. This is the most disgusting. This is the thing that you reject and you run from very reluctantly. You're still caught in it. But I 
forgiven, but I'm forgiven, but I'm forgiven. Yes. You've forgiven. For me, it's have you forgiven yourself? No, I can't forgive myself. And so I rejected that part, but now I've turned it even to the sin of actually forgiving myself. And then the second part is, have you forgiven the other person? Well, no, I have to sort of work that through. And that's where they step in and say, okay, now come. We actually want to just ask the Lord, because God created six brown people together, that that was an, a bonding that was not guarded. Lord, we ask that you help us to, in, in other words, to sever the bond between two unconnected and release. For me, I wandered from there. That awakened my sexuality. So I wandered into sexual perversion as a teenager and got sexually involved in a couple of girls that I dated. The challenging thing is eventually I get woken up by the Lord. I say yes to him. I say no to girls. Don't worry, it didn't last that long. But I said no to girls for a couple of minutes. No, I said no to girls for a few months. And I said, Lord, the next woman I, I want to meet has got to be marryable and be the potential to be, be my wife. But you've got to get me cleaned up first. It's about two months later, maybe four months or so, I meet Karen. And Karen is, um, some of you guys can relate to me. You ever meet a girl that's out of your league? You should be nodding right now if you're married. Okay, just I'm just saying, I can feed you your lines one at a time. But it, you know, it works better if you catch on a little faster. Okay. The fact, <laughs> okay, let me go slower. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing with it. So when I meet Karen, uh, we, probably in the first few months, both of us had said no to the toxicity of our past, although she kept herself pure and I had not. Um, when it came time to be married, I knew as uh, I knew when she was the one asked her to marry me, and all of a sudden I'm realizing I've got to do the big confession. And the big confession is that unlike her, I had not saved myself from this. And so I had the horrible experience of breaking my oath to God. Uh, it, it might have been the first time. Um, I, I wish it would have been the only time. And when I broke her heart, I, I, what I did was I said, um, it's all under the blood. Uh, I'm a believer now. That's part of my old life. I had other lines. What were the other lines? Oh, yes. If anyone's in the new in in, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Glory, hallelujah, something like that. And so I, I used that scripture uh, to put up the shield that I could hide behind. The fact of the matter is, at that point, I was well aware of the sin that I had done, but I was not aware of how you apply the blood of Jesus to where I needed it the most. Where I needed it the most was the most painful place of my life. That's possible that we could be set free in the first place. It's also possible you do what I did and you walk for 10, 15 years saying no to the Lord, hiding behind your different shields. That's part of my old life and it's been dealt with under the blood. Somehow, mysteriously, mystically, but you still live in the pain. So the unfortunate news is for the first few years of our marriage, my life was really trying to love a very broken, sinful man. And uh, when you're trying to love into a heart that's soaked in sin, it feels like your love ricochets off of it. And so that was kind of part of our story. Eventually, when I was taught this truth about soul ties, I hated the fact, but it was true. I received some ministry, and then they told me the, the most fearful words I could hear because they, they, in a sense, helped me break the soul ties with the people that I had both introduced sexually and the men with girlfriends. And then they said, Kent, you got to go home and pray with Karen. I said, wait a minute. I have girls in this girl's heart. And they said, yeah, but because you guys are running wild, 
and you will want fuel, then the truck fuel is still this size. But imagine that there's a pipeline between you guys. And whatever's going on spiritually has access in them, has access to you. Well, I'll tell you, I rejected that idea because I didn't have it. Not because it's not true. I rejected it because I didn't have it. There's a big difference between what God's word says and what I like. You ever read some scripture you don't like? No? You should read the Bible more. And so I went home, and I still remember, I can remember the house, I can remember the bed, I remember Karen laying on her side of the bed, me kneeling up the floor uh, uh, beside her bed, and uh, putting my hands on her, and we asked the Lord to sever the ungodly sword ties between the, the girls that I had been with and, uh, and her because I had been the open door. Does that make sense? I still remember her words. She was always very gracious and very forgiving, as she said. What she said in that moment, she said, it's done. See, something just lifted off our lips. It's funny because although I wasn't walking in sexual sin at the time, she felt that some sort of sexual defilement lifted off my lips. Isn't that crazy? How could the enemy have authority to visit sexual defilement on my mother when because I'd screwed up before, I was guilty of every sexual sin because she broke the covenant? It's because he's had authority in me before I came to him. And because I was so shameful or ashamed, I hid. I didn't say, you know, I need my Jesus can set you free. But sometimes when you're ashamed, you hide that place that he wants you to set free. You know what I mean? Where you need him the most, you can shut that down because it's so awful and so dirty. I'll show you something. Now, what I found out is when I brought that to the people who ministered to me, they weren't as freaked out as others are. I kind of had to stop and say, what's the matter with you? I'm just telling you something great. They said, it's okay, God bless you. I said, no, what's wrong with you? And all of a sudden, something came out of my mouth. Did Jesus say he doesn't love you any more than that? I said, yes, he did. So I confessed two things. Now I've confessed the sword ties, but I've also confessed a lie that's not true. You need a little bit of a better biblical backdrop for that. You say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6. Let me just confirm that before I lead you on to this scripture. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, chapter 12, Paul says, Everything's permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but not, I will not be mastered by anything. Now he's talking about authority in the sense that you're, you're under something that's got control over you. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your body is a member of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, Paul says. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Friends, uh, let me keep being honest with you. We live in a sexually crazed time. If we ever had sexual boundaries around the sanctity of marriage, very few people do today. As a minister, as I've married different couples, it's really rare, unfortunately, in Canada to find a couple that's actually saved themselves to marriage. That doesn't mean that God can't use it. It's not like his hand 
his arm is too short or hands are tied behind the ba- his back and he shrugs his shoulders, but I don't want it to be. No, it's actually the fact that he can set that couple free. He can actually deal with the root of some of the relational upsets they've had when he deals with the soul parts that they have with other people. Okay, it's not just sexual. There's another place you can have a soul part. I don't know if you've ever heard the term of cutting your apron strings. You've heard that term? Then, then don't look at your mama right now. Just, just, just nod. Have you heard the term? The, the thing, you know, sometimes we can be tied in relationships in a way that the other person has a little bit of an intimidation or a fearful effect on you. Jesus asks you to do something. Maybe pastor's in the tent. You can tell he's letting it rip and giving you the word of God. You're saying, I need to do this. And the first thought that comes to mind, oh, no, what will mama think? Your wife's sitting next to you. Your kids are out in the children's program. But you're saying, oh, if we take this leap of faith, what will mama think? There's a problem. Because your mama may be a great lady, she might be a godly lady. But your first question should be, what is, what's Holy Spirit asking and what's Holy Spirit saying? Second question is, this woman or this man beside me who's my spouse, what are they saying? Third question is, what's best for my kids? And the answer to that is that I'd be obedient. Not that I do that. So then you say, well, where's mama's say? Well, the, the scripture teaches that when a man and a woman come together, that the man will leave his father and mother, and he will cleave, he becomes one with his wife. One of the ways that some of us guys have hurt our wives is actually that we made her feel like she was second, not first. And that mama was still first in our life. You follow what I'm saying? That can represent an ungodly soul pattern. Mama comes in and tells you how to run your home. Or mama comes in and she runs her finger along the mantle and says, this is not clean. You know, I know these are horrific stories, but they come from real places, unfortunately. Or if, if uh, mama moves back in when she's retired and you make a kind of a, not a granny sweep, because she's not a granny, but you, you make a retirement, you know, living sweep. And as she moves back into your home, she kind of starts to take over. Part of what's needed is godly boundaries to say, well, mom, we love you and we honor you and we bless you. But Jesus is the authority in this house. And as a man and a woman, our marriage covenant means that we have to steward that authority ahead of you. So we bless you, but you don't have authority in this house. Is that okay? Now, the tough conversation comes. If you catch your mom, and I'm not against women, but hear me out. If you catch your mom lipping against your wife because you, uh, as her, her little boy, you married this woman and that woman never measures up, there comes a time where you've got to address your mom and say, Mom, I want you and I, I wish that you would honor the woman I've chosen to be my wife. But, Mom, I want you to know that if you choose not to, you will have hell to pay with me. But I'm not your worst foe. You will have hell to pay with God because you're undermining this marriage covenant. And I love you and I bless you and I warn you not to do that. I want you to move into a godly place. Then you get on your knees and say, Lord, is there any way that I have crossed boundaries and given my mom an ungodly say in my life because we've been tied in a wrong way, not sexually, just relationally. It can involve fear and intimidation. Most of us who've been bullied have had an ungodly bond with the bully. Are you kidding? Be bonded to a bully? Yes, that's what fear and control does. It gives somebody else control. 
one time, ladies, if, if you, you know, you ask a question, you say, well, something's broken in the house, and you're going to call my dad. You call your dad before you call your husband. You can drive an hour to your husband's car. You're telling him he's not man enough. What? I didn't mean to tell him that. I know. It's because you don't speak masculine, and you think that we're just dumb, emotionally self-driving, and we don't have a, you know, a lively bone in our body except the sexual one. I told you I learned a lot ministering to women. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes we don't realize we bring the bond from one relationship into another relationship. And especially with marriage, God says all the other bonding moves into second place. So that you keep your wife first in your heart after God. You keep your husband first in your heart after God. I told one lady who'd come, she was getting ready to leave her husband. She'd actually told her husband, I went to look at another house. The kids and I are moving out. She came to the ministry. And what it was is there was a, a place where she'd been abused in part. She didn't realize that that man-hating thing that came out of the pain of the abuse was actually being directed at her husband. And so she was, she's not a perfect guy, but she was triggered by it. So I spoke to her and I said, God's order, remember healing is bringing God's order to situations? I said, God's order is that God's first, husband second, children first. She's never heard that before. I said, you need to repent over putting yourself ahead of your husband. Over putting your kids ahead of your husband because you've just dishonored the Lord. And it's a great way to wound yourself. If you throw your husband under the bus in front of your kids, you're actually wounding your kids. Well, you can dishonor your kids, but you'll wound your kids. Many of us do that in our pain. We don't realize we're doing it. It's easy to take fun and let our wounds take up far our authority. We can even happen in our own home. In that situation, we want to bring that back into godly order. And I said this to this woman. She said, I said, I've never heard that before. And I said, well, why don't we, where's this healing? Man, she was replanted. Let's take the blood of Jesus she's given this last year. Let's apply it there. So she says, Lord, I have literally had a bond with my kids that I've allowed to trump my bond and my honor with my husband. Please forgive me. That's applying the blood of Jesus. She acknowledges it's wrong. She acknowledges things are out of order. She also acknowledges, no wonder my home is in chaos. No wonder everybody's sick. So then she, she actually applies the blood of Jesus to this area in repentance. She, she forgives where she's been abused. She walks through the healing of her abuse. And wouldn't you know, all of a sudden, the Lord took, like, scales drop off her eyes, and she looks at her husband, and all of a sudden, with that man-hating spirit gone, he's a different man. He wasn't in the room. He didn't receive prayer. He didn't get a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Nothing changed in his life except she dealt with the wound in her heart. You follow what I'm saying? And her marriage is made new, at least in that moment, because she surrendered that area to the Lord. We wanted to present this to you today because God meant for us to bond together. He meant for you to bond. Some of you are part of this church family, and you love your church family. Pastor Jim, Pastor Kelly, is there something coming on here? You say, uh-huh, I'm coming. Do you know what it is? No, but I'm going. Because, you, you, you know, you just trust them, and it's right, and, but you, you're, you feel safe in this fellowship. You have a bond with, with your church. You're supposed to. You can also have a bond in a place where Matt was mentioning this morning, like where you've been, when you've been spiritually abused, that's an ungodly bond because it was an ungodly situation. Does that make sense? You may have been married, gotten divorced because your spouse died, and now you're, you got married again. That wasn't ungodly to be bonded in the first marriage. But now that that spouse is deceased, you can ask the Lord to sever the ties that you have with a deceased person. 
I can even, you know, sometimes in ministering to somebody who's been grieving over the death of their parent. Can't say big word, no, spiritually, emotionally. And when we actually can, can minister to the person that they actually can really turn their grief over to the Lord, not in a sense of turning it off, but in a sense of opening up and letting him breathe into it and allowing themselves to feel it and grieve it, often what's happening is that have you, have you released the other person? Matt mentioned this morning if, if, if somebody's had to get to the point of breaking, sometimes you need to release the child to the world. And because the child has died, ask the Lord to start with the child because he has enough power to take care of it. But with the parent who's grieving, sometimes what needs to happen is say, Lord, I release the, this person to you. Now I ask you to cover the child that I have with me. It's not that there's anything ungodly. It's not necessarily that it can be. It's not that you're wrong to remember things about them. It's because they've deceased and you're living with them. So, Lord, I release them to you. In many funeral uh, ceremonies, you'll notice sometimes that you'll actually say, we commit this mortal body to the Lord. Or, Father, we commit their spirit to you. We don't say we hold on to them. I went to a, a Catholic mass one time, Roman Catholic wedding, actually, where the priest, and I would not say this is characteristic of the Roman Catholic faith in Canada, but the priest said, praying for the couple who's being married, he asks that the spirit of the departed come back to visit this couple and to help them in their marriage. And the congregation echoed, Lord, hear our prayers, Lord, hear our prayers, except my wife and I, you know, we renounce that in Jesus' name. We have no part of it, you know what I'm saying? But the Lord has actually forbidden us from having illegitimate contact with the dead. I think that's a no-brainer. But we're also then releasing those who've gone on to be with him or our spirit to say, Lord, I don't want to be tied to those people. Does that make sense? Now, I could say a lot more about this, but I think the principle is not something for you to get lost in. But hear the Holy Spirit where he's just wanting to put his finger on a place in your life where you've had a bond with someone else, but it's not been part of his family or his world. And he wants to set you free. You can even do that as your parents. You know, I think I've been hanging on that too long. Lord, forgive me for letting fear now depart from them. I want to release them to you. And I ask that you sever every way that we've been tied together in an ungodly way because of my mistake. Does that make sense? If you've been in a place with a controlling church or controlling parent, part of it is, you know, we always look at the other person, they're the control freak. I know you've never met a control freak, but don't, don't look at them like that and run. But we always paint the control freak as, as the Jezebel. We don't ask the question, what was going on in my life that fear had so much power over me and I didn't stand up for what was right? And instead of blaming them, sometimes we need to say, Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. I forgive myself. I forgive this other person. And I ask that you sever the tie between us where I allowed the fear of them to make decisions in my life instead of the fear of God to make decisions in my life. Is that okay with you? Can we pause here and pray into this a little bit? Don't go into fear and say, oh, Ken, I've got 45 soul ties. Listen to the Lord. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you if he hasn't already. And I just, you know, very simply lead you into the principles of how to pray in this. And sometimes what happens, you take the lid off, you welcome Jesus in, it can be done in a moment, or sometimes he'll take you step, 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 because there's a deeper surgery that's needed. 
that, that word, he doesn't do what you don't need. We're just going to open up this area of our lives to him. Is that okay? And then we're going to come back and I want to talk to you a little bit of a general application. So, Father, I trust Holy Spirit. Would you show us, why did I bring this today? Why did you want us to bring this? Where does it apply in our lives? Thank you that you're not drawing us into sin. But, Lord, in, in Jesus' name, we acknowledge. Lord, just thank you for the ability to bond together with people. Forgive us for every way that we've shut down because of sin and resisted bonding to other people because I've done that and I know some of it. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry that I've rejected people because of the way I've been led up to. Please forgive me. But I deeply surrender my forgiveness to those that have hurt me or wounded me or controlled, especially the bullies. I choose to release and forgive every person that's bullied me in the name of Jesus. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for every place where I've been a bully and I've thwarted my way over someone else and I know it's been there. Lord, would you cover every tie between us that was established in intimidation, manipulation, domination, I don't want to be bonded to that person anymore. Would you lift off of them every ungodly thing and lift off of me every ungodly thought? Church, simple invitation for Jesus to take control of you to go to the next level. I want to pray for those of you who've been uh, abused. I don't know your face or your name, but I just know that some of you are here Father, where ungodly sexual things happen in our lives, both at our hands and at other people's hands, Father, I ask for your truth that we put responsibility in your control. I choose to forgive every person who's uh, touched me illegitimately sexually. given them and ask for your forgiveness for my part. I choose to forgive myself for my part. And I renounce the claim of that. And in Jesus' name, I speak to every unclean spirit that's come upon me or us through this ungodly sexual act. And I command you, lift off in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, you are the Savior and the Savior. We ask for freedom in this area of our lives. Don't let the enemy seize it. But I pray that you would set us free as you desire us to be set free. I ask that you lift the claim of sexual sin off your people. 
it's always fun to have that conversation with a group of teenagers. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, they think that they were conceived by their parents and all their siblings were adopted or something. But I'm not so trying to be crude with you. In, uh, so often in the scriptures, when you read the word, God talks about, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to keep my covenant, the promise that I made, based on my character with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting that God talks about generational inheritance and generational blessing. If you guys back in the sound booth, or sorry, back in the video booth can actually look up those slides, like those ones, that would be a great help. Okay. How many of you have heard before that God is a God who keeps his promises generation upon generation, and that we are actually tied, we are receiving, you and I are receiving a spiritual inheritance today from our families. Isn't that true? Well, let me just, how many of you would be excited if your families were multi-billionaires and they were going to leave it all to you? Oh, look at the openness in the room. Well, isn't that wonderful? How come money gets your attention like that? Money's not going to do it. Most of the people that get billions, it leads them into bondage and death. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to save you. The fact is, every one of us in this room, God's given you something. It's not always financial, though. It's spiritual. I want to show you an example of, of a, a godly inheritance and an ungodly inheritance through the same man. Who's heard of Abraham? Okay, I got a 40% of the hands. That means everybody else must have fallen asleep. All right, this is Genesis chapter 12. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. He's about to enter Egypt. He said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. This is a good thing to say to your girlfriend. You just leave out the second part. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say that you're my sister, so I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Okay, next slide. And it says, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians did see that Pharaoh was such a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. She was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake. So he lied, and he gets blessed. All right. But, and Abram acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So Abram's living in a tent, getting wealthy. And Sarah's where? In Pharaoh's house. We don't know what Pharaoh did to her just yet. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh. See, here's the thing. Some of us are still trusting in our own ability to pay this off, to, to pull this off. Look at God protecting his kids. He inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. This man's wealthy. He's powerful. He commands the Middle East. And he brings this sweet little thing in his house. And all of a sudden, everything shuts down. There isn't any help. There isn't any anything. And so Pharaoh summons Abram. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was my sister? Interesting, this is the ungodly guy understanding godly principles. Isn't that a funny thing? Why did you say she's my sister so I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And that ends that chapter of the story.
And then we get Genesis 20. And it says Abram moved on from there to the region of Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abram said of his wife, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, now the last king is Pharaoh. This one is Abimelech. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for Pharaoh, and he took her. Here's an example of a family curse. The women are too beautiful. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. Why didn't God come to Abraham? God comes to to Abimelech in a dream one night and he says, you're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. Just leave it to God to kind of lay it out there straight, right? So it says, now Abimelech had not gone near her. This is good news. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Nation, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't he also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God said to him in a dream, funny, Abraham and Sarah are God's chosen. God's talking to King Abimelech. Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Once again, the Lord knows how to make a point. And so, Abimelech actually gives her back and says, Abram, will you pray for me that God's healing will come to my house? And so then Abram prayed to God. God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abram's wife, Sarah. See, God's the God who gives wives. But in this case, he shut down the womb so that they w- he could get their attention to deliver Sarah back out of their hands. Why? Because God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. He said, I will make a great nation out of you. Right? Okay. So now there was, this is Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Abraham's son, right, Isaac. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. And Isaac stayed near Gerar. What happened? When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife, and he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. So now we have the next generation, once again, beautiful women. That's it. By the way, I'm just joking when I talk about the curse of being beautiful. Ladies, there's nothing wrong with being beautiful. Um, so when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window, and he saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebecca. Now, we're not going to... Okay, so the original language doesn't, let me just say they can't print Bibles that actually say what really happened there, okay? So, so Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she really is your wife. Why did you say that she's my sister? What's the next passage? Isaac answered him, because I thought I'd lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? Of course, poor Abimelech, he's going through this twice. <laughs> One of the men might have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. How does that work? You take my wife and sleep with her, and I bring guilt upon you? The logic of that day and age. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Keep in mind that he's, you know, he, he's learned the lesson twice now. So that's interesting because you see this. Abram lies about his wife. And Isaac literally does the exact same thing. Well, Isaac has sons. What are their names? Jacob and Esau. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. 
the first came out as uh, out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, and so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. What does Jacob's name mean? Deceiver, one who grasps the heel. Abraham lies about his wife. Isaac lies about his wife. The third generation, his identity is defined by the generation that's to come. And his name is Deception. Are you serious? Don't think he's in the Bible. Are God's hands tied? No. Let's look and see what he does. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. This is years later after Jacob deceived uh, Esau out of his birthright, and his mama was part of that, wasn't she? Right? And then Jacob was deceived by his father-in-law over marrying the girls, wasn't he? So it's not like there's much deception manifesting in the family line at this point. Well, it's time for Jacob to meet his older brother, who he ripped off from his birthright. So as a courageous man, he sends all the women and children ahead of him to go see Esau, and he's going to come ready. Hopefully he sees how blessed he is and the favor, and he'll be nice to him. So the other thing is you see these men putting themselves first to save their nation. But what was happening? Jacob was left all alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he, as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not go unless you bless me. The man said, what is your name? What's he asking for? He's looking for Jacob to tell the truth. See, because for us, so many of us, we just go by names to get our name. We don't always look at the deep, at the meaning. But in Hebraic culture, your name actually was who you uh, uh, recognized of, of who, not only who you are, but who you're called to be, often given to you by your father. So when Jacob confesses, I am Jacob, he's saying, I am deceiver. Look to God's intervention. So your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and been broken. Now what does God say? And I will make a great nation of you. The challenging thing is that so often, especially in Western culture, we come to the kingdom of God and we say, Lord, I am an individual, I am a man or I am a woman. I have nothing to do with my family line. Unless, of course, our family line is really wealthy. Oh, I am very connected to God. And if you come from a long line of, of pastors and missionaries or, or doctors and lawyers, don't you feel blessed? Okay, maybe not. But if you come from a long line of bootleggers and scoundrels, well, of course it'll be okay with you. And the fact of the matter is, is that all of us come from family. So let's take a look at this next idea. What happened in your family line before it came to you? I'll just describe quite quickly. Let's, let's say this couple at the bottom, this beautiful couple, you can see all their pieces there, uh, are Kent and Karen. Uh, I came from uh, uh, my mom and dad. My dad, the first uh, generation Christian in our family line, to first man to give his life to Christ. My grandparents before him, good folks, but we can see a generational inheritance coming down the line. There's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of shame, a lot of rejection, and as far as we can tell, none of the men knew the unconditional love of their father. So there's a big rejection. Big father wound. 
which means if you have a big throttle wind, you have a bigger catalyst. Funny. I happen to be a, one of the gifts and abilities that I had when I was a younger man is I had that big attitude. And big attitude came from a big regret by my father. His big attitude came from his regret. My grandfather's big attitude came from his regret. So we couldn't do much, but we could have attitude. We could quit jobs, and it was always the other person's fault. And it was always the person's fault who didn't pay us. We moved from relationship to relationship, from fashion to fashion, from job to job, from situation to situation, and it's always the other person's fault. Unless you remember back in the 90s, you had these big posters that you'd see in offices and churches, and it said, the president meant the tough money. And you, ever, you remember those at all? Gold. <laughs> okay. I saw this one. It said dysfunction. When the only common element in all of your broken relationships is you. admit my, my attitude was so stinky as a teenager. By the time my brother and sister got to high school, my teachers had already predestined them to be like me. The funny thing was, it actually wasn't who I was as a person. I was, a, in a sense, a nice enough person, but I was so rejected and so unloved, it just came out in this ugly spectrum, and I looked like I was angry all the time. I felt angry all the time, but I didn't know I was. Does that make sense? You have this generational pattern. On Karen's side, her family looked much prettier. They're one of those pretty families. They go to church on Sunday. They got things all together. But my wife, just after we met, actually, um, yeah, we were, we were maybe together for about three, four months, and she came down with she's diagnosed with depression. No, it wasn't because of me. But when um, she just had this complete melt meltdown, and had to be taken out of college. They literally carried her to the hospital. And um, I, I didn't know what to do, but I hung in there. And, and over, over the years, it's been a long time before some of that subsided. And, and if you hear our first testimony, actually the first 10 years of our marriage was, was dealing with this depression. Although I had my issues because her depression was so loud, it tended, I could hide behind my wife's issues for some time. Because we had, then we did go for counseling. We went to get my wife fixed found out that I was the problem, but I wasn't actually at the root of her depression, but these are some of the dynamics in our relationship. Then we go, we start to look at generationally, we know that her mom has battled depression her whole life. Her dad battled depression undiagnosed. Her grandparents, grandfather also, depression. Isn't that cool? All through her mom's family line has a whole bunch of sisters. You find all kinds of mother who's illness and depression. Must this be a coincidence? Well, why is this so? In Exodus chapter 10, God makes some promises with his people. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In verse 4 of chapter 20, he says, You shall not make this for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, on earth, or, or in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them for or worship them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the sin of the fathers to the children, to the third and ge fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The reality of our family, oh, there it is up there. The, the reality of our family was actually that Karen and I were both 
inheriting the blessings of parents who love the Lord. And that gave us a great start together. But what really caught our attention was that we were also manifesting the sinful behaviors of our, our families. And while I had to own it as a man, I was the one with the bad attitude walking out the rejection. And I rejected myself, I rejected other people, and all kinds of things that I did. I'm also walking out a family tree. Does that make sense? Some of you guys have been battling addiction. I'm not here to say it's your father's fault. And I would not say saying it's your father's fault is going to set you free. So if that's been your mantra, it might be something you need to ask the Lord for clarity on that. But I will ask, have you ever considered the fact that if you decide to be sober and Jesus takes over Lord of your life, he's breaking a pattern in your life that is actually going to be unlocking one another? what your son is going to inherit from you is going to be a different part of the story. Have you ever considered that? It doesn't make it your father's fault. What it means is that something has steered your momentum in your family line, in your lineage, that's not the heart of God. We're going to do um, a parenting day at All Saints Rock in Canada, but this is not the group that comes, so I'm going to tell you a little secret. Well, parents come to us say, how do I help my kids? Would you teach us parenting skills? And I thought, I would love to. Let me give you the most powerful parental gift anyone has ever given me. Aside from blessing my kids and letting them know every day that they are the apple of my eye. The second most important thing I would say is that somebody helped me get on my knees along with my wife we repented of the generational sin in our lives. Ben for me, Karen and I, on one occasion, we dealt with our attitude towards academics because of how both of us had not performed in school. And we dealt with the roots of that on our generational line, and we watched our kids come out of struggling academics, uh, academically, literally shoot to the top of their class in unbelievable time. We're just sitting there in complete tears, saying, what? Are you saying what? It's just what I promised. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, repent and turn to me, here's the gift, and I'll hear from them, I'll forgive them, and I'll heal the land. Well, it, it wasn't the land. The land does get healed. But I saw it right in my own home. The best gift we ever give to our children is when you and I bring ourselves to Jesus and say, Lord, if there's been rebellion in my family line, it's going to stop with me. Lord, if there's been witchcraft in my family line, now whether witchcraft is a witchy kind of craft or whether you're the witchy, witchcraft is a Masonic kind of craft, either way, witchcraft, no, it's going to stop with me. And I, I just, my heart breaks for parents who are saying, why do my kids have this bent? You may not have this as much here in the U.S., but we've got tons of it in Canada, Christian parents saying, I've raised my kids in the church. Why are they moving towards witchcraft? Why are they enamored with the darkness? Why do they, you know, get skulls and crossbones tattooed all over these, these you know, literally these tattoos that are all about welcoming spirits of God? Why do they get into that? I'm not all against, I'm not ragging on if you've got a tattoo. What I'm saying is, why do our kids get enamored with the darkness? And I, I try to pull the parents aside and say, look, before you get into what you did wrong, let me ask you a question. Is there any place in your family line 
Yeah, witchcraft is welcome or embraced. Our people were worshiping idols. So often. Yes. Okay. That's foolish. What about sexual perversion? That's foolish. Don't tell your kids. Don't go in and lay your hands on your 20-year-old when he's sleeping in the middle of the night and start casting a demon out. You may meet one right then. You know, that's not what we're talking about. You're the ones with authority, but you need to understand God's design for how we use that authority. And the best thing is for us to get on our knees and let it stop right then and there. You know, the funny thing is, my kids, uh, our oldest daughter was born before the healing journey started. Our healing journey started right around the, the time the second one was born. And we had been well on it a number of years for the, the th- before the third one was born. To watch the first one we saw go from academic dumpster to actually, she began to like school because there was people there. Learning was key, I saw. But then we saw her actually begin to excel. The second daughter, we've seen go through school, and she's gone to Cain and just blown our minds and been so rock solid in her faith. She's a nutritionist, but she studied in a world that's way fuller spiritual than this school. But she's been able to scratch out God's truth, set aside the mystery, and stay put. And I think she's so proud of her. The third daughter is so academic, she thinks she's a doctor. (laughs) She likes school. No, no, I'm, you didn't hear me. She likes school. She, if she has an evening off, you know what she wants to do? Study. Some of you are saying, but brother, that's a curse. You need to break that one right there. No. What I'm saying is not that that's, that's the perfect, and obviously I'm a dad, so I'm docile with my own kids. What I'm telling you, though, is look at the blessing of God from two bucks of people that take this truth and say, okay, Lord, work on this carpet. And he starts to deal with a generation and literally watch the children go from quantum change to unbelievable change to is this person even part of the same generation we're on? The answer is you're darn right she is because Jesus got a hold of a bunch of that other stuff and he broke it. Why? Because Satan was robbing his son in Cain. And I bet she's been having table dreams too. Not everything that plagues your life is 100% because you're Jewish. But it's an enemy. And so part of the, the, the truth of this generational inheritance is you're still asking the question, is this biblical text? Go snooping through the scriptures. Pay special attention to Daniel's how he prayed when it comes time for the people to walk into Jerusalem. Pay very special attention to Ezra and how he prays when they're getting ready to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Pay very special attention to Nehemiah, how he prays when he sees and hears news that the rebuilding of of Jerusalem has not gone well. In fact, everything's in ruins. Instead of pointing fingers at the people to blame, Nehemiah's in a cushy government job. He actually gets on his face, his heart's broken, and he says, Lord, this is because of my sin. can do that for all of us in any generation. If he is rightly crying, Lord, this comes in our family line, this is my season. And it can go farther back. Some of you, you know, uh, we're talking first John. Did you hear this? She's got problems. Talk, talking to Jenny this morning about her family line. 
uh, not remind them that I speak for this couple. Um, and she explained that where she comes from and all of the, the godly inheritance on the Mohawk people, you don't have to reject your First Nation blood. You don't have to reject your, your American African blood. If you've got, you got some slavery inheritance there, the enemy could be telling you things that are not true about you. If there's been mistreatment, you guys have had absolute wars between black and white here. Sometimes we can carry that. That doesn't mean I should have to take it. Does that make sense? You may come from an, an Irish background. You may come from a sober Irish background. Well, I would be a miracle, wouldn't I? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to reject your family. The fact is you can receive everything that's godly. I don't know. We recently, uh, um, Alicia's mom and I were led to uh, study the book of Ezra. And interestingly, coincidentally, uh, a couple on our team who was pregnant and didn't tell us what they were having a boy or a girl. They actually had a little boy, and they named him Ezra. Well, it had been about a, a month before he was born. We were led, led to the book of Ezra, saying, Lord, why are you reading Ezra? We get to Ezra, and I'm reading through it, reading through it, and then we get to the genealogies. Don't you love the genealogies in, in the Scripture? Aren't they tough? They're like chewing on a, you know, a chunk of wood or something. But let me just tell you guys, when you come to the Scriptures, remind you, remember, you're coming from the devil's world. So ask your Father in heaven to open your eyes. I try to do this almost all the time when I open the scriptures. And as I'm reading Ezra's genealogy, if you can remember. You can go ahead, you ask your friends. I notice the family line that he's from. And I notice that he's of the tribe of Levi. And if one of his grandfathers, great, 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 is that guy that went crazy when the, the men were sleeping with the Moabite women, and one of the men came into the, remember his name, Joel? Can you look up his name for me? Sorry, Phineas, thank you. One of the men came right in front of Moab, dragging, Mo, Moses, dragging a Moabite woman. So in other words, he's going to commit adultery with a foreign woman. And God said, you done that. He drags her right through the court and takes her into the tent to sleep with him. Phineas grabs a spear, goes into the tent, drives the spear through the man and through the woman who are currently in the, in the act, which is in the Bible, so you should know. And kills them both. And God speaks. Hey, Moses, did you see Phineas? Yes, I know. He's more zealous for my name, or he's as zealous for my name as I am. I tell you the truth. I'm going to bless that man, and I'm going to bless his family line, and I'm going to bless his kids and his grandkids. Because of the zeal that he had for my name. And we kind of move on and we don't realize what God said and what God will do. Many, many years later, God's people were doing such rebellion, those bad guys came in, hauled them off to Babylon. Seventy years later, well, not quite 70 years, they start coming back. Second wave of people, first spiritual group of people that come back, that are released to come back to rebuild Jerusalem. There's actually a group uh, under a guy named, what was his name? Zerubbabel. Second group that comes back is actually a guy named, under a guy named Ezra. 
spoke to Ezra, who was of the tribe of Levi, that he was a man who studied the word of God. And when he came back, he not only led the people in rebuilding the temple, but he led them in the word of God, that they would actually establish the foundation of rebuilding Jerusalem, and they would build it according to God's heart. And you can read through Ezra and Nehemiah, this man Ezra actually guiding the people according to God's heart. Who on earth is Ezra? He's Cornelius' great, 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 great grandson. And God is keeping his promises, and things have been dead for him. That's what he said. Some of you are here, you're actually writing and working and stewarding godly inheritance. Thank you, Lord. I'm not talking about your whole inheritance being ungodly. I'm talking about asking the Lord to deal with some things that are not godly. Okay? I've got a couple more things to say about this, and we're going to pray and take a break. When I share a principle like this, hungry people often go, shoot, I didn't know, and we panic. Okay, Lord, in the name of Jesus, you grab a shotgun off your lap and go, bang, 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 bang. In Jesus' name, I hope I hit something. You ever pray that way? Okay, I'm not shaming you for praying that way. Can you, can you, <laughs> some of you going, I pray that way all the time. Okay, slow it down. I just shared with you a biblical principle. But unless Holy Spirit has, has put a fingerprint on something, you may not know how to apply it yet. Don't put it on a shelf and forget it. But don't panic and start blasting off into the wind. Say, Father, where am I needing to apply the blood of Jesus to my family line right now? And we keep praying. Can I ask you, make a note of this and keep praying on it for a while. We're going to pray today, but I'm going to ask you to pray on generational issues. On the generational cleansing, I ask you to pray for a month and a half to two months. And ask you to pray, say, Lord, show me what's going on in my family line that I need to deal with. Father, what are my kids inheriting that you want to stop with me? What are, what are my kids supposed to inherit you want to multiply with me? You want to release and unleash with me? Do you follow what I'm saying? What can happen? You say, well, I prayed that prayer at Faith Chapel that day. Nothing happened. Two weeks from now, you call up Mama on Sunday afternoon. Hey, Mama, how are you doing? She says, oh, I'm good. I'm just going through the boxes of your dad's old conviction stuff. What? Have you? What? When? Oh, your father was part of the lodge years before you were born. And he, he don't worry. He left it because of all that stuff. And you hang up the phone going, Lord, I asked you to show me. You don't have to blast everything. You just say, okay, Lord, you need to show me. How do I renounce the covenants that were made in the Masonic Lodge on behalf of our family and my line and my group? You may come from a First Nations background or maybe half First Nations background. We, we call them First Nations. You guys may, may name the tribe specifically and say, your people have actually expressed hatred towards the, the white man, towards the church, towards white Christians because we've sinned so greatly against you. But it could be that you're carrying that and we realize, oh, I remember my dad and his hatred towards this. Or, and we all of a sudden realize, oh, the Lord keeps bringing that to my mind. Father, I'll renounce that because I don't want to stand in an ungodly judgment of any group of people. In, in Canada, as we've ministered to the deaf, it's been amazing the hate and disrespect towards Germans. These guys, this generation, now we're ministering to, and 
lived in Harlem. None of them actually had anything to do with that, but they carried just not even the stories of the parents because they never did the spiritual work. It's actually the spiritual work of the abuse that the parents and grandparents remember. The rent, they're living in the children, and in the children's uh, mindset, there can be powerful breakthroughs. Give you one more example. First time I heard this, I did what I used to do. So I rejected it because I didn't like it. I, I just want to confess. I used to read God's word and let it speak to me. I used to just go on house trips. Don't like it? Take it off. Don't like it? Take it off. In fact, somebody would even rip, rip a page out of your Bible because you didn't like what it said. That's how the first thin line Bible came to be. It was actually a person. <laughs> so I'm hearing this teaching, and a guy named Ken is teaching, and he says, and, and he, he just stops. Is there anybody here with German background? Okay. Yeah, that's the question he asked me. And uh, my grandmother was German. Karen's dad is German. And he said, do you want to stand and repent of how your people have treated God's people? And I heard a voice on your feet saying, and I was on my feet before I could say more. And Ken just led us through a simple prayer. Father, would you forgive us for every way that we've entertained a prejudice against your people and entertained that wicked spirit of anti-Semitism in every way that we've come under a hatred towards the Jewish people. And I make the Jews the experience. I'm a believer. I'm a, I'm a grafted in. I'm adopted into their family. I hate my own family. It's the dumbest thing ever if I think about it now. Couldn't see it then. And I renounced it and confessed it. And then he just commanded that, that thing to lift off and he sat down. No fireworks, no lightning bolt, no getting hit with a two-by-four, nothing. Just on your feet, son. And then I sat down. And there was a guy in our church of a Jewish background. He and I used to have coffee and talk about Jesus. And it ended in tears. Never again. He actually got sick and went into a coma, and I was at his bedside in that moment until he came out. There's actually something in me that would hate another man, in this case, a Jewish brother, because he's Christian? God says, Ken, you didn't tell me to tell you. You wouldn't do it. Okay, well, I'm hearing it now. Well, yes, then you did it. So let me ask you, is there anyone here whose family has stood in hatred towards the nation of Israel because you have a German who have a German heritage will understand and will know what happens in your kind of ancestry line to those who did not. Okay, that's the eight. But I'm going to ask two. I think this is primary, but there's more. I, I feel like there's more of us here where our families have stood in hatred towards another person, another people group. And I'm, I'm just going to leave that general, but if the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart, then I want you to feel free to come and share with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand in your presence today. Would you please make this prayer your own as I pray it with you? Father, we stand in your presence today, and we confess and renounce in the name of Jesus 
where our family, be they uh, German, be they another people group, be they uh, white American, Afro-American, first people or last people, where we have stood and tasted, where we have stood in prejudice against, where we have spoken against another people group, and first we renounce the hatred towards the Jewish people and the anti-Semitic spirit that has wanted to annihilate them. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, and we forgive our ancestors where they have entertained this. And in Jesus' name, Father, forgive us and cleanse us of this wicked spirit. And I command every spirit of anti-Semitism off my family line right now in Jesus' name. I bless the nation of Israel. I bless them as a holy people. I bless them as God's people. And I bless them as my family. And I receive them as a blessing. Let me be a blessing to them, Father. Now, if there's more people groups, again, I'll listen to the Lord. You don't just have to follow my words. You have to follow him. If he's tugging at your heart that you, you recognize, oh, there was huge warfare between my people and this people or between the, uh, you know, the, the, the um, Protestants and the Catholics with some Irish background, could be between the French and the English. I know we've got all that in North America, don't we? It's okay. It's who stopped with us, guys. So in Jesus' name, Father, we confess the atrocities that we committed against the first peoples on this land. Lord, forgive us where we have used our authority to crush, to manipulate, to annihilate, to rob, to trick, to, to steal, to coerce, and to degrade and put down the first peoples on this land here in America. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, where our ancestors have been involved in this, Lord, we forgive them for their sin of injustice against the first peoples in this land in Jesus' name. I know some of you have prayed in this, on this before, but I think you need to revisit it today. I ask for your forgiveness for my part, Lord, where I've now manifested this sin. And I ask that you cleanse me. And I command every bit of hatred towards the first peoples, every bit of war and violence and abuse off of our family line in Jesus' name. And I forgive them in Jesus' name where they have responded or retaliated against us in sin. I forgive them for every act of violence, for every word spoken. And in Jesus' name, I break the power of every unbroken curse over our family line from the First Nations coming against our family. And I break the power of every word that we've spoken over them and every curse going back to them. And in Jesus' name, I command the spirit of peace, lack of respect and lack of honor that I have now honored my brothers and sisters who are different from me, but they are made in your image and they are called by your name. Cleanse us, Lord. And now, Lord, we lift up other families, the Italian families. We lift up those, Lord, of us who grew up in a certain part of the city and hated people
another part of the world. Lord, those of us who grew up in poverty and we hated those who were wealthy simply because they had more than we did. Or those of us who grew up in wealth and we hated those in poverty because they made us feel annoyed. In Jesus' name, we renounce the hatred and the anger. In Jesus' name, we renounce the fear. And we forgive our forebearers where they have hated other people or stood in pride and saw themselves as better than someone else. Father, I forgive my friends where they came under the condemning law. And I ask for your forgiveness where it's been part of my life and my life. And I command every spirit, prejudice, of injustice, hatred, fear, off our family line in Jesus' name. Lord, would you restore my eyes so I can see people the way you want me to see them, that I can embrace them the way you want me to embrace them, and I can love on them with the love of the Father, the justice of the Son, and the generosity of your, your grace in Jesus' name. I'm just going to give you a moment. Here's Holy Spirit whispering something in your heart. I've been talking too much. You just need a moment to pray. Just stand on those. If you've got something you need to have out with the Lord, please just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. If he's brought something to mind that you recognize you're supposed to be a people of him, you can confess, you can forgive them and then confess that and repent of it just as I've led you through the process.
Lord, show me. Lord, show me if there's more. But also, Lord, show me the fruit of what I just did. So that you know, you grow in confidence and you grow in courage to actually see the fruit of taking that. Just as Shannon and I saw our, our relationship with this man, Shannon, I won't name her, she's being recorded. But just as I saw you saw that fruit real soon, God needed to show that to me so that I would kind of keep gaining momentum in my obedience to him. He needs to do that with all of us. So it's okay, Lord, show me if you want to. Okay? God bless you guys. If you have any questions, please talk to a member of our team. We're going to take a 15-minute break. And uh, then we're going to come back for, uh, Matt's going to open up, kind of take those principles and run it, play it forward into the kind of final uh, teaching session of our day. And then we're going to have some time to receive prayer from Ministry Bell after that. We are going to try and wrap up a little early. We're not panicked because of the snow because we think God's bigger than the snow. But we also want to be sensitive as we leave it. Okay, so let's take a break. We'll come back in, looks like, 20 minutes at quarter to three.